0: Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Cross Life once again. Uh, my name is Deontay, for those of you who don't know me. And I have the privilege of working here on staff at Cross Life. And tonight it's my great joy uh, to be able to open up God's Word with you all and to learn from it. And so with that being said, I want to get started right away. Um, tonight we we'll are continue our Lion and the Lamb series. That is our series devoted to studying the person and the work of Christ Uh, Our series devoted to answering the two important questions of who Jesus is and why it matters. Why it matters. And so tonight I want to begin by asking a few questions. I feel no need to answer aloud. Please, please don't answer aloud. You might be the only one doing so. (laughs) Um, And I'll try to pose them uh, slowly so you can think about them. Question number one. Have you ever been extremely disliked by someone? Uh, Have you ever been sought sought after constantly by someone who wanted to oppress you? Uh, By someone who wanted to destroy you? Have you ever been told that the very thought of your existence was annoying? And angering? Have you ever been told that your presence was sickening? Have you ever been rejected to the point where your life was being threatened? Have you ever been schemed against in order to be put to death? Has anyone ever told you that they wish you were dead? Has anyone ever sought to kill you? Intense questions. I know as I ask that, I look out and people are like, whoa. <laughs> Intense questions, I know. Uh, But my guess is that most of us in here, and probably all of us, would answer no to every single question just stated. And what I want to talk about tonight is the fact that Jesus, Jesus Christ, could answer yes to every single question just stated. At the top of your notes, if you grabbed your notes, you can see I've titled the message, The Hated Christ, And what I wish to show you from scripture tonight is that Jesus, though he was loved by many, he he was a loved man, he was hated by so many more. His life could easily be characterized as one who was hated, one who was despised, one who was passionately disliked by so many. Have you ever thought much about that in regard to Jesus? Have you ever noticed in scripture or taken note of the fact that Christ was hated? If you haven't, that's okay. That's what we're going to be covering tonight. So if you would, if you have your Bible, um, or if you have your phone, turn with me to John 15. John 15. It's the fourth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John chapter 15. We are going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. Uh, we're going to be jumping around somewhat tonight, but uh, I'm going to constantly be alluding back to John 15. This is going to be basically our our home text, if you will. So let's read, starting in verse 18 of John 15. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your words. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have seen me and hated both me and my father. Verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. John's gospel from chapter 13 to chapter 17 records Jesus giving his last instructions to his disciples, his last lessons to them. John, the author of this gospel, turns his attention from the public ministry of Jesus to the private ministry of Jesus. That is, from Jesus ministering to the multitudes to Jesus ministering to his 12 disciples. Jesus knew that his time left on earth was short. He was soon to be handed over to the Jews who would then hand him over to the Romans, who would eventually kill him. He was leaving his disciples, whom he spent day in and day out with for the last three years, and it was crucial, it was essential that he prepare them for his departure. And one of the last lessons that Jesus decided to deliver, to give to his disciples, concerned the hatred of the world, and that's what we have here in John 15. And so because I'm going to be using the word world quite often tonight, and because Jesus uses it here in John 15, I want to define who the world is. Uh, When I say that word and when Jesus uses that word here, he isn't talking about the whole of mankind. I think you guys know that. He, He isn't talking about the entire human race. Everyone doesn't hate Christ, right? We know that. But rather, he's talking about the ungodly individuals of this world. Who are opposed to him. Uh, The mass of men who are alienated from himself and from his father, God. The men and women who are enslaved to and following the God of this world. The prince of the power of the air. Who is it? Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 2. He's talking about the individuals who are still subject to the domain of darkness. Colossians chapter 1. All the people who are enslaved to the things of this world, namely the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and what? The pride of life. 1 John chapter 2. That is who the world is. Wanted to make that clear. And so Jesus here is informing his disciples of the world's hatred for them. And even more so, listen to this, the world's hatred for him. The disciples were to soon feel the weight of persecution after Jesus was gone, and it was essential for them to understand that the hatred that was directed at them was for no other reason than them being followers of Christ. The world hated them solely because they represented Jesus, because they looked like Jesus. Notice how many times Christ mentions himself within these eight verses. It really demonstrates that Christ is really trying to drive home to his disciples. Yeah, they're going to hate you, but listen, they hate me. They hate me. He tells his disciples in the second half of verse 18 to know that the world hated him first. Verse 19, he tells the disciples that the world hated him because he himself chose them out of the world. Because I myself, Jesus chose you, therefore it hates you. In verse 20, he says, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. Verse 21, they will do all these things to you. That is, they will hate you. They will persecute you, why? Because of me, on account of my name. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, They would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen me and hated me and my father. And in verse 25, he sums it up. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason or or without a cause. They hate me first. Because they did this to me, they're going to do this to you. On account of my name, they will hate you. Uh, the world has seen my works and hated me and my father. For no reason, they hate me. Uh, needless to say, that Christ is the emphasis here, right? And the hatred of the world towards him. Again, this was crucial. For the disciples to understand as they begin to feel the weight of the ministry. As they begin to experience the hatred of the world more and more. It wasn't because of anything personal that they were being hated. It wasn't because the world missed their great fishing skills. It wasn't because of the family that they were raised in. It wasn't because of the way they walked or talked. No, it was because they looked like Jesus. Jesus. And the world hated Jesus. Jesus, in verse 25, he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. And in all probability, he's probably quoting from a couple of passages in the Old Testament, one being Psalm 69 and the other being Psalm 35. And what I want to do now is I want to draw your attention to the latter, because I think it gives, it gives really, really wonderful insight to the degree in which Christ was despised. So turn with me to Psalm 35, David, we all know the life of David, King David, or at least most of us, uh, he was a man who faced immense opposition, uh, Saul, the very first king of Israel, really made it his life's goal to destroy David, didn't he, you guys know this, and he was fueled by his jealousy, uh, Saul had disobeyed God, As king of Israel, and therefore God uh, was replacing him with a man after his own heart. And that was who? David. David. And Saul couldn't swallow this fact, and therefore he constantly sought after David's life and even managed to obtain a following. And so David here in Psalm 35 is praying for God to protect him from his enemies. His enemies, Saul and company, who are seeking constantly after his life. And so you might ask, why does Jesus in John 15, 25, say that he was the fulfillment of this psalm, if this is about David and his enemies? Well, because Psalm 35 is what we would categorize as a messianic psalm. I'm not going to get real technical in explaining what that means, but it simply means this. As David is being driven by God to write these words in Psalm 35, he's not only speaking of his own current situation, but he's foretelling of the life of the Messiah, Does that make sense? Uh, The Christ, Jesus, was going to suffer during his life just like David suffers here in Psalm 35. And so let's examine how David suffered. Starting in verse 1, he says, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Uh, David calls for God to protect him from his enemies. Verse 2, take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Here again, David prays for God to protect him from his enemies. And in verse 3, you see he calls them his pursuers. An interesting note that that word pursuers, um, it comes from the, its Hebrew word is equivalent to the Greek word that's translated persecute. These individuals that are spoken of here in verse 3, David's enemies, they were, they were persecuting him. They were pursuing him in order to oppress him. Verse 4, let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. David characterizes these individuals as one who sought after his life, as one who devised evil against him. He prays for God to protect him from such men. Verse 7, for without cause they hit their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. David's enemies for no reason, for no justifiable reason, wanted him dead. They wanted him dead. Skip down to verse 11. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. Though David was good to these men, they repaid him with nothing but evil. Verse 13. But I, I, when they were sick, what did he do? Did he laugh? Did he say, yes, they're sick? No, listen to what he says. I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. David explains here how he was burdened and saddened when they were sick. He cared for these individuals. He considered them friends and brothers. The feeling was not mutual. The filling was not mutual. Verse 15. But at my stumbling, did they afflict themselves as well? Were they sad? No. He says, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me, wretches whom I do not know, tore at me without ceasing. On the contrary, David's persecutors rejoiced at his calamity and afflictions. They, they were glad to see him down and out. These vicious individuals, he writes, he says, they constantly... They incessantly tore at me. Verse 16, like profane mockers at the feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. That is, saw in company, they cringed, and they were annoyed at the very thought of David. Couldn't stand them. Verse 17, "How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their precious, from their destruction. My precious life from the lions." Listen to how He depicts these men. Lions, I will thank you in the great congregation and the mighty throng. I will I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without a cause. Without a cause. These individuals, he says, he sums it up, they're they're wrongfully my enemies. They hate me for no legitimate reason. This is really a sad text, isn't it, as you try to imagine a man being sought after to this extent? Uh, But keep in mind why I brought you to this passage. It wasn't to have a pity party for David. It, It was because Christ brought his disciples back to this passage in John chapter 15. Remember, David here is speaking about more than himself. The Messiah was to suffer in the same way. And as we read through this text, were our minds not drawn back to the life of Christ and how he was treated? Was Christ not pursued by his oppressors? Was his life not sought after nonstop? Was he not repaid evil for good? It goes without saying. It goes without saying. It's unquestionable that Christ suffered in the exact same manner a far greater manner. Christ in John 15, 25, as he's telling his disciples of the hatred of the world, he points his disciples back to this passage, and he says, I am he. The way David was hated and pursued in Psalm 35, that's being worked out in my life, and it's been worked out in my life. I am the Messiah who has been hated just like David was hated. Again, it was crucial that the disciples understood this, that they understood this. As they sought to imitate Jesus, as they sought to live like him, to talk like him, and to walk like him, Jesus says, hey, hey, wait a second, guys. Let me tell you something before, before you do that. Count the costs. You want to look like me? Let me tell you. The world hates me. It hates me. And it's going to hate you. Hatred always manifests itself in some way, doesn't it? We see in the life of Saul that the hatred that was built up in his heart toward David led him to delighting in his suffering. That's the way it fleshed itself out. It led to him cringing at the thought of David. It led to him constantly seeking to destroy David. It led to constant plots against his life. It's the way it worked itself out. Hatred always manifests itself in some way, shape, or form. And so what I want to consider now is how the world's hatred for Christ manifested itself. How did they prove or show that they really indeed hated Christ? And what I want to mention now is three ways in which the world demonstrated its dislike for Jesus. The first being its rejection of him. Its rejection of him. The second, its false claims. Its false accusations about Jesus. And lastly, it's desire to destroy him, to kill him. And so demonstration number one of the world's hate was its rejection of him. As Jesus ministered to the multitudes for three years, the world constantly was stiff-arming him, wasn't it? You know, as I thought of this very fact, I couldn't help but to think of how we as humans have such a great fear of rejection, don't we? We do almost anything to avoid it, and I mean anything. I couldn't help but to think of this fact as as I thought of the life of Jesus. He was and still is a reject. This sad truth concerning the life of Christ, the fact that he was going to be a reject, was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. So you're in the book of Psalms. Flip over a little bit to the right. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, this is, probably the most famous chapter in the book of Isaiah. It's a glorious chapter. It's wonderful. It's foretelling of the life of the Messiah, how his life's going to be. Isaiah writes, starting in verse 1, he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that is Jesus, the coming Messiah, grew up like, uh, before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was a descendant of an enslaved people. He was born in a manger. You guys remember what Philip said when he heard that the Messiah was from Nazareth? He said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Christ had no beauty that we should desire him. From a worldly perspective, there was nothing beautiful about him. That's what Isaiah tells us. He continues in verse 3. He says, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah says, he, He was hated, he was rejected. Listen, what he says at the end of verse 3 and as one from whom men hid their faces, they wanted nothing to do with them. Nothing to do with them. The rejection of Christ was foretold here, and it was indeed a reality. Jesus was rejected by his own hometown. Mark 6, verse 1 through 6, records. And more than being rejected by his own town, Mark 6, verse 20 through 21, and John 7 tells us that he was rejected by his own family. Flip over to the New Testament to John chapter 1. Now John chapter 1. Starting in verse 9. Uh, the true light, that is Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own people. He came to his own people, John writes. For what reason? Uh, to give them life, to give them freedom from the bondage of sin, to give them hope in the gospel. And they accepted it, didn't they? They received it, didn't they? The end of verse 11, he says, and his own people did not receive him. Rejected by Nazareth, his own town. Rejected by his own family mates. Rejected by his own people. The nation of Israel rejected him as a whole. And Jesus lamented over this very fact, didn't he? In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus weeps. You know this passage. He says, oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? How often I came to you. How often I wanted to give you life. And he says this, and you were not willing. They weren't willing. They wanted nothing to do with him. The world hated him, and it proved it through its rejection, through its rejection. That's demonstration number one. That's proof number one. Proof number two, or demonstration number two of the world's hatred for Christ, they spoke falsely about him. There were constantly false accusations being made against Jesus in order to diminish his influence. In order to cause people to disregard who he really was. And a couple of those instances are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. So you're in John, flip back a couple books to Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. And here... What you have recorded is Jesus healing a man from his demon possession. Starting in verse 32, Matthew 9, 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him, him being Jesus. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. This has never been done before. Jesus put on display his deity, his power, and it was, he was gaining popularity. The Pharisees knew this. That's why they said what they said. Verse 34, but the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. The miraculous works he performed was further evidence for his deity, and the religious leaders knew that. And so they falsely accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. I mean, when I came to this text, I said, really? Really? They knew that wasn't true. But they hated them that much. This wasn't the only time they knowingly made false statements about him. Flip over a couple pages to your right. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is, Jesus, And he healed him. So the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Again, Jesus putting on his display of deity, showing his power. But the Pharisee says, "Uh -uh, Not so fast. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Again, they attribute his work to the power of Satan. It's not a clear evidence of their hatred. Is it not, ladies and gentlemen? John 7, verse 20, records the crowds that Jesus was speaking to. He was proclaiming hard truths to them. And listen to what they said about him. You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? In John 8, verse 48, it reads this. The Jews answered him. Listen to what they say. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? That is a pagan Gentile? Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? John 8, verse 52, the Jews said, Now we know that you have a demon. In John 9, verse 24, it records the religious leaders Speaking to the blind man that Jesus healed. You guys know that story. And it reads this. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. Stop talking about this Jesus guy who healed you. Forget about him. He's no one. And listen to what they said about him. We know that this man is a sinner. They knew Christ wasn't a sinner. But they hated him to that extent, that that they would do whatever that they would say whatever to diminish his influence. John 10, verse 19 through 20, it reads, there was again a division among the, Jewish, among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, listen to this, he has a demon, speaking of Jesus, he has a demon in, and is insane. Why listen to him? Why listen to him? When Jesus was on trial before the Jewish council, he was deemed a reviler of God, a person who spoke evil about God by the high priest. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it records his own family saying that he was out of his mind, his own family. They said he was demonic. They knew that he performed the works through the power of God, and yet they called him Satanic. They said he was a blasphemer of God. They called him a sinner. They said he was a nut, a lunatic, out of his mind. They said he was insane. Oh, I'm certain the gospel writers spared us of all the false claims, of all the false accusations made against Christ. It's just another demonstration, ladies and gentlemen. It's just another proof of what Christ told his disciples back in John 15. They hate me. They hate me. Demonstration number one, they stiff-armed him. They rejected him. Demonstration number two, they constantly lied about him. They knew who he really was, but they made false claims about him anyway. Demonstration number three, Proof number three of the world's hatred for Christ, they wanted him dead. Need I turn your attention to all the passages concerning the plots and the schemes of the religious leaders seeking to kill him? Time will fill us. The world wanted him dead because they hated him. And this started at such a young age, didn't it? The attacks from the world upon his life. When Jesus was just a baby, his parents were supernaturally told through a dream to to flee from where they were living and to go to Egypt. And the reason they were given that message was because Herod, the king of Israel at that time, was seeking baby Jesus. And for what reason, you might ask, was it to give him candy? No. Presents? No. Sing him lullabies? Nah. Matthew 2, verse 13 tells us it was to destroy him. It was to kill him. King Herod had gotten word that there was a child who was born in Bethlehem who was going to be the king of Israel, and he felt threatened by this news. His throne, he felt threatened. And as a result, listen to this, he ordered a baby genocide in the town of Bethlehem. A baby massacre in order to take the life of Jesus. Attacks upon Jesus' life started so very early on. And this was indeed the pattern of his life. And it really picked back up when he began his ministry. And it lasted throughout his three years of ministry. Now, Let me show you one example of this, um, though there are many. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Starting in verse 1, When Jesus had finished these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus tells his disciples that he was about to be betrayed and murdered. And indeed he was. As he spoke, there were plans being made to do so. Verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Cephas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Is this not the clearest way to demonstrate your disdain for someone? To have a desire to see them lifeless, literally? I'll ask you one of the questions that I posed to you at the beginning of this message. Has anyone ever told you that they wanted you dead? Has your life ever been plotted against? Has anyone ever told you that they wanted to take your life? Such a desire is a clear, clear manifestation of hate, isn't it? So we have rejection. And we have false claims. In demonstration number three, the murderous plots and attacks upon Jesus' life. These were the three ways in which the world demonstrated its hate. Not the only three ways, but three ways we looked at tonight. And so it was suffice to now ask the question of why. Or why did the world hate Christ in such a way? Why, why were these plots set against him and these claims made about him? Why? Well, if you remember what Jesus said back in John 15, he said that the world hated him for no reason, without cause. And what Jesus is really saying here is that the world's hate for him, they had a reason, but it was unjustifiable. See, the, it, it indeed hated Christ, but its hate was unwarranted. It was indefensible. It was unfair. And that reason was this. He exposed them. He exposed them of who they really were. See, Jesus, with his piercing words, reveals the true color and the true nature of humans, and that doesn't sit well with most. It didn't sit well with us, did it? See, Jesus exposed the religious leaders of Israel day of being blind guides, of being false teachers and children of Satan, and they couldn't stand it. Jesus exposed the crowds who followed him in his day, who were constantly asking for miracles to be done and signs, to be done he exposed them of their inability to look past the physical things to the spiritual things he exposed them of their inability to stop thinking about their flesh all the time and start to and start giving some attention to their soul he exposed them and for this reason the world hated him exposure john tells us that flip flip back with me to or forward to john chapter three john chapter three Here you have Jesus' famous conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus. And we'll start in verse 19. He tells Nicodemus, and this is the judgment. This is the condemnation. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Jesus here simplifies unbelief for us. He says that the reason people don't want him is because they love their sin more than they love him. It's not difficult. Ladies and gentlemen, don't make unbelief more than it really is. It's not difficult. Jesus says people don't want him because they love their sin more than they love him or more than they love him. When you're on campus talking to people, you're talking to the intellects Quote unquote, who struggle with believing in Christ, they can't believe? Is it something intellectual? No. They love their sin more than they love Jesus. Your unbelieving family members, your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving coworkers, they haven't accepted Christ because they love their sin more than they love Jesus. It's not difficult. Jesus continues to talk to Nicodemus, verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things, what? Hates the light. They hate the light, that is Christ, and and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. They don't come because they don't want to be exposed of their evil ways. Ladies and gentlemen, think of this truth in light of our own lives today, doesn't the world hate Jesus because he reveals who they really are? There's constant mockery of the person and work in Christ in this day and age. There's constantly false claims made about who he is. The world constantly seeks to drag the name of Christ in the mud. And for what reason? Because they can't stand the truth. It can't stand to hear the truth of who they really are. And therefore, they hate him. Flip over with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Why? Why do they hate him? He exposes them. Starting in verse 2. Now the Jews feast of boots was at hand. so his brothers, that is his blood brothers, Said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. They're being sarcastic here, just a heads up. Uh, For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. We already talked about that. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. That is, I can't go to this place because people are plotting to put me to death. And it's not my time yet. It's not my time yet. He says in verse 7, the world cannot hate you. He says to his own brothers. It cannot hate you because you look like the world. They love you. They embrace you. They welcome you with open arms. What about him? He says, but it hates me. It hates me. Why? because I testify about it, that it works are evil. Again, Christ makes it clear. They hate me because I tell them the truth of who they really are. I expose them. It's fitting now for me to make a plea to the unbelievers in this room. Undoubtedly in a, in a group this size, there are people who, here, who are here who aren't Christians. And I want to ask of you this this evening, would you turn from hating Christ? Would you in humility embrace the truth? Would you en- embrace the exposure of Christ in his word? That you're a sinner. And in brokenness of your sin, would you fall on your knees in repentance and faith? Oh, how I pray, unbeliever, that you would turn from being a hater of God, a hater of Christ, which I myself was once, and which so many in here were at one point, would you turn from being a hater of God to a lover of God? So thus far, we have seen that the world hates Christ. Jesus made it clear to his disciples. We started back in John 15, and then we moved to Psalm 35, because that's where Jesus took his disciples. We looked at David's life and how he was hated and how that was being worked out in Christ's life. And then we looked at three specific ways in which the world demonstrated its hatred for Jesus, through its rejection, through its false accusations, through its murderous attacks and plots against his life. And then what we just talked about is why the world hates Jesus, and it hates him because he exposes them of their wickedness. He reveals their evil ways. And so now what I want to talk about, now that we've talked extensively about the hatred of Christ, is the application to our lives as Christians. So, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we close. And the reason I didn't devote so much time for, to this is because the application is simple, isn't it? It's simple. Jesus told his disciples back in John 15, The world hates me, therefore, what? It's gonna hate you? It's not difficult. So, the application is get ready. Get ready, believers. Stay ready. A persecution in America is on the rise, isn't it? This is not a nation that is following after God's heart in no way, shape, or form. This nation, through the judgment of God, is being given over to a reprobate mind. That is a depraved and wicked mind. And it's going to start to show its hatred for you more and more. Christian. As you seek to follow Christ, as you seek to look like Christ, to talk like Christ, remember it hated him and it's going to hate you. Paul put it so well in his words to Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that is, all who desire to look like Christ, to be like Christ in every manner, of their life, to have, to have Christ preeminent and first in all things, it's going to happen to them, will be persecuted. They will be hated. They will be oppressed. It's coming. Be ready. And in light of that, remember, we got the Spirit of God. Amen? We got the Spirit of God. We got the Word of God. We got the people of God. So, believer, rely then on those things. Rely then on those things. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It's challenging. I thank you for the truths concerning. Your son, Jesus Christ, and even if it's a truth that is not so easy to accept, as we love Christ, and it it hurts us really to think of this truth that he was hated, that people rejected him, and they do so today, that people false were constantly lying about him, they sought to kill him. But this is a truth revealed in Scripture, Lord, and there is an application to this truth, and it is that as we seek to live like Christ, the hatred's gonna come upon us as well, and it already is. Paul says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, he says, will be persecuted. And so, Lord, as that persecution comes upon us as believers, would you help us? Will we rely on your spirit? Will we rely on your word? Will we rely on your people? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.